12. Gasland. Jules wiped the raindrops from his waxed, bald head, his fingertips lingering over the scars, crisscrossing the skin, taut over his skull. Through the pale, orange lenses of his eyeglasses, which obscured the slit pupils in his golden eyes, he glanced at his reflection, slanting off a mirrored storefront. He made haste toward the subway stairwell, its entry still marked by stencil-like, green-lit, art deco lettering. His eyes had been grafted, and embedded within them were nano-cameras that sent digital images to the Naranya Empire regarding his infiltration into the Petroleum Club. Jules turned at the stairwell, focused through his grafted eyes to an interior display on his semi-permanent contact lenses, and looked up to the high-rise he had just exited. A phone number came up in the display, and Jules blinked for dial. Inside the Petroleum Club, inside the matchbook box, identical cell phone wiring was buried within each and every matchbook cover. The match heads, laced with pentaerythritrol tetranitrate, ignited from the simultaneous cell phone signal shockwave, and there was an enormous detonation, a booming, Bellow, accompanied by an explosion of penthouse window glass. It burst out from around the tower like a crystal sugar ring of Saturn before it dissipated, glittering as the glass slowly showered down. Jules lowered his gaze and padded down the wet steps a little faster than his feet wanted to carry him. At the turnstile, he glanced furtively for anyone wanting to sell a swipe. The moments stretched, and activity at the street clogged the stairwell as pedestrians realized something warlike had taken place. A bomb, someone yelled, and the word echoed out of the mouths of many. Bomb. Bomb, bomb, bomb. In the mass frenzy collapsing into the subway system, Jules followed the man in front of him and simply jumped the turnstile. He blended in with the stampeding panic, and when a D train pulled in, he squeezed onto it, as anonymous as the rest. Word spread quickly through the car about a bomb, and Jules was relieved when the train dutifully lurched into motion back toward Manhattan. In his Lower East Side loft, Jules removed his gray sport coat and slowly unbuttoned the pale green shirt. He hung both up neatly and made his way to the kitchen. Cool, small lights washed across the calcified scars, crisscrossing his back, chest, torso, and the full length of his arms. 
He eyed the skyline, where he could see Gaslands biplanes buzzing like angry dragonflies around the devastated penthouse of the Petroleum Club. He opened the refrigerator door and removed a liter of crocodile blood. In a crocodile leather seat arched up like a throne, a crocodile skin from Marco Polo tannery under his feet, he faced the small live crocodile he kept in a tank in his sanctuary. He clipped the blood bag to a medical rod attached to the throne and inserted a needle into a vein in the crook of his arm. Slowly, the blood began to flow into his body. He inserted another needle into his other arm and his own blood transfused into an empty bag. He stared at the crocodile, its lithe length curling in the murky waters of the tank, its dark green body flinching with lighter greens, yellows, and muscle. He had been going about his business as Mr. Jules Barbion, dealing his erotic goods through his chain of blue room sex bars when the Petroleum Club had captured him. He did not believe Rocky Astor had been so naive that he could not appreciate the wile of a double agent. But then, the gasoline tycoons were not exactly known for pursuing the edges of the scientific future in the same way the Solar Empire did. Rocky had not at all seemed to notice his pale orange sunglasses, a transparent insignia of the orange colors the Naranya Guards always wore. The Petroleum Club had, when they had first captured him and wrangled him into the back seat of a gas guzzler, thoroughly examined him for surveillance, including an examination of the sunglasses, and found nothing. They had first spotted him at a Sotheby's auction, purchasing a Shakespearean folio, fourth edition, which Jules later identified to them as finding its way to the central library, where it was placed inside the permanent Naranya collection. When they had brought him to the Petroleum Club that first time, they demanded he confess his relationship to Naranya. Rocky held his cigar up and sucked on it, making the end rush with a cherry glow. Then he leaned in as if he was going to burn him right between the eyes. I'm a reality pimp, Jules told him. I sell people what they want. Rocky halted his advance and after a moment leaned back. Blue rooms? Naranya threatened to. He paused and selected his words with great consideration. Confiscate my operations if I didn't, you know, assist. But why books? Hell, matches are more valuable than books, right, fellas? Rocky glanced around at the barrel-chested gang who ran Gasland, 
and puffed smoke out of his mouth like an old train. It was well known that the central library had undergone a massive fireproofing renovation. It had also gone on the Sotheby's auction block, and once sold, it became privatized by the Naranya Empire. The librarians, heavily armed guards dressed in black uniforms sporting the simple zodiacal sign for Libra, the scales, allowed visitors in two dozen at a time. The local fire department engine houses were handsomely paid to protect it at all costs, and subsequently, their red trucks also sported the Libra Scales insignia. Jules knew immediately that the men of Gasland did not know, time was not, and in fact had never been, linear. It was concentric, like the rings of a tree, organically evolving around its once seated core. There was no way to tell them no way to get them to believe or even entertain the idea that for the Naranya Empire and those close to it, there was but one week repeating itself over and over again, not really rewriting itself, but overriding itself. There were always April showers and never any May flowers, but those not in the know just blamed it on global warming. In the city, almost no one remembered what bird song was anyway. Jules at once lied and told the truth, shrugging. He's a collector. But why you? I could send my shoeshine boy to hold up a paddle at Sotheby's. I'm a collector as well, gentlemen. An unknown face at Sotheby's buying some of the world's most expensive books would be unsettling. They might think your shoeshine boy a fraud, an accumulator of objects, but not a collector. There is a vast difference. Rocky pondered this. What do you collect? Jules wanted to say, realities, but instead, he curtly answered, anything crocodilian. Jules watched his young crocodile become still in the tank. The idiots of Gasland, their machine guns and gas-guzzling cars, couldn't burn a barrel of trash unless Naranya let them let alone the central library, or unless the guards, the Naranya slaves, as they considered themselves, in their intricate ways of communicating with one another, helped out. Idiots, he thought. He had been buying Shakespearean works over and over, always close to the same date, April 23rd, Shakespeare's birth, and death day. This week, the anomalous and sudden appearance at Sotheby's of the antique matchbook collection, Jules witnessed 
as a sign. It was easy to forge the copies that were handed over to Rocky Astor, since the matchbooks were displayed in catalogs. And what they were doing with the original matches, Rocky could never fathom, though he would approve. Paper news, like a dinosaur, had gone extinct, and digital news had been hacked by someone who called themselves the Machete. The hacked code, named Ouroboros, did not spit out junk. It deliberately generated and delivered news based on what it thought a reader wanted. The book collection of the Central Library housed what was left of public history, and Aranya guarded it in the same way he guarded his daughter's heart. Jules closed his eyes and dreamed of the night he would no longer be enslaved to guarding the folios, but would help set the library on fire and serve only his god of choice, the crocodilian abyss, the end of time that was but one week away from swallowing them all. He voice-dialed Rocky Astor's number from a computer phone At the core of the blown-out penthouse, his pants around his ankles, his head bleeding from where it had hit the urinal during the blast, his cigar turned shrapnel, Rocky came too. Traces of the explosive chemicals embedded in his cigar tobacco peppered his face with smoky residue, and Rocky blinked to the sudden jarring sound of his ringtone. He scrounged for his phone in his pockets, and he answered slowly, How did you know I'd still be alive? I didn't. Jules stood and walked close to the crocodile tank, his eyes stealing out to the night sky, to Gasland. But since you are, know this. You work for me now. The fuck I do. Exactly. The fuck you do. The brothers will come and find you. The brothers? My men. My army will fight and... Your gang and their silly planes. No match. Pardon the pun for Naranya. Feels good to be alive, doesn't it? Rocky, now, pull up your pants. The brothers are on their way up. Rocky suddenly sensed his partial nudity, his penis pressed against the cold tile, urine splashed onto his trousers. Crammed into this vulnerability was awe for whatever surveillance Jules had on him, and he yanked himself up in a hurry as he heard the elevator bell indicate the car had arrived at his floor. The bomb, he realized, detonated out, but not in. His hands were a flurry on his zipper as footsteps, even and doubled, clipped onto the tile floor. He looked up to witness two men, identical twins in black suits, their black hair swept back from their brows, their eyes 
hidden behind dark sunglasses. Their guns pointing at him. Simultaneously, they said, let's take a walk. Jules hung up, reached into the tank, and gave a loving stroke down the snout of the young crocodile. He bundled his scarred body into green crocodile leather pants, a shirt, boots, and an overcoat. He turned to a hat rack, tucked his bald head under a green crocodile leather cap, and, looking every part of Pimp, he walked down the Bowery through the thick crowds, rain from the latest thunderstorm rolling off his waterproof crocodile skins. Jules entered his closest brothel, where men and women bought synthetic sex. The hard beats of dance music drummed the interior, and synthetic blue night sky, spattered with twinkling starlight, pushed like velvet into the folds of the crowd. He observed the crowd from behind the illuminated walls as he toweled his face and eyeglasses dry. He observed further as a program altered the lightscape only for a flickering moment, and the night sky projections became, in a blink, the skin of a crocodile. Immediately, they transformed back to peaceful sky. Reality for the human never changed cataclysmically. Parallel reality addiction, like heroin addiction, did. Jules knew, by small turns and cranks, by minute flashes, human beings would come to accept, in the same way a junkie chased addiction, revolution. Half dragon, half man, he thought, so shall Sobek return. He stepped back into the humid night, his skin scintillating with beaded sweat, and he quickly padded down the wet concrete steps to the D-train platform again. He never took a car or a taxi. It was utterly impossible to be traced by train as long as he took the necessary precautions. He felt the wind pick up down the tunnel the way it always did when the train was arriving. It blurred, a hammered, silver thing, gunked with black dirt and graffiti. He almost smiled when he saw the car stopping before him, tagged with the signature of the artist in billowing yet boxy green letters, Sobek. He stepped into the train, a revolution on his mind, and with a blatant intent to incite by means of subtle insider reality trading, he rode toward Gasland to meet with the brothers and the now kidnapped Rocky Astor. The woman in Orange sat in her office on the top floor of Orange Security in Times Square. The circular high-rise was made of glass, and each floor was comprised by an alternating band of either opaque white glass or opaque bright orange glass.
at ground level, a retail store covered up what actually took place in the building above. In its core was another high-security building, and from here she commanded the Naranya guards. The Naranya Empire did not control news or any of the other big brotherly advantages it did, in fact, possess. On the contrary, it carefully cultivated reality and maintained it so that it would not become a victim of itself. The Naranya guards did not police New York City. They policed reality. It was said the great library of Alexandria had accidentally been burned down by a firestorm that had leapt from ships down a dock to the library itself, but no one really knew. Thinking of this, the woman in orange, Agent Orange, sat at her desk and opened the case of original Shakespeare Company matchbooks. In many ways, she was the most powerful woman in New York City, and in many ways, she was the weakest. Inside her helmet, she closed her eyelids over bright blue eyes and considered what it would be like to lose all printed history for the city to sink into the anarchy of irreversible misinformation. She witnessed a terrifying darkness, a darkness that was calling her name. Rook circled the midtown block where he had traced Mione's vehicle. He inferred it was parked in a subterranean garage beneath a motel named Marco Polo. The topology of New York City was so complex that for a detective who thought he knew its every nook, the sudden presence of yet another Marco Polo business with which he was unfamiliar was almost unnerving. But the topology of New York was always in flux. Businesses closed and others opened overnight. Streets that had run north to south for years suddenly ran in the opposite direction. The vertical topology seemed infinite, and the once remarkable Empire State Building was now a dwarf amongst pinnacles that stretched like twinkling harp strings into the thunderstorm clouds. The aesthetic of Times Square had long pulsated outward into the rest of the city, and the lower stories were all covered with electronic advertisements, making the city somewhat of a lagoon in which day-glow tropical advertisements, like flitting fish, swirled, blinked, stretched, snapped, and winked with not a moment of peace for the eye. The Marco Polo Motel was an aberration from this gaudy display and was both cool and serene in its silvered Art Deco prowess. 
The architecture belied construction from earlier years, and yet Rook could not place it in memory at all. Rook attenuated the surveillance feed in the sedan's windshield and zoomed through the glass facade of the main entry to peer into the interior lobby. He was immediately struck by the scintillating nature of emerald green wallpaper covering the high walls and echoed in the flooring. Rook zoomed further into the details and witnessed what seemed to be a raised and reiterative pattern in the wallpaper that struck him as looking like sheaves of wheat. Or, he thought, weeds.